Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of The Bible Unmuted. My name is Matt Halstead, and it is a pleasure to be with you once again this week. Today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 11. Now we've been through Romans quite a bit already. We've done a number of episodes, and it's exciting to be in Romans 11 because Romans 11 has a lot of cool things that we're going to need to uh, um, explore and journey through so that we can wrap up a lot of things that Paul has been talking about thus far. In many ways, Romans 11 is a crux point, um, and it's important that we understand it rightly. You know, a lot of times people read Romans, say, chapter 9, chapter 10, by themselves. And really, if you if you want to read Romans 9, you've got to read Romans 11, because um, Paul, as is well known, kind of has a, has a whole section of thought in Romans 9 through 11, and those three chapters no doubt go together. I mean, the whole book goes together, right? So I hate, well, I have this allergy against um, sectioning off parts of Romans. I mean, the more I uh, read Romans, the more I'm reminded that every part goes with every part. But it is okay to acknowledge and to recognize that it is in sections, that that parts of Romans um, are more Uh, I guess you could say thematic uh, with each other than other parts. But nonetheless, um, when you come to Romans uh, chapter 9, 9 goes with 10 and 11. You've got to have those three together. Um, So anyway, all to say, today we get into Romans 11, which we'll we'll circle back around to a few things that we talked about in Romans 9. Um, And so you'll see how things wrap up quite beautifully. Well, before we get to that, though, I want to share just a little bit about my new book, that I've, uh, that I've been talking about. It's called The End of the World as You Know It, What the Bible Really Says About the End Times and Why It's Good News. It's published by Lexham Press or with Lexham Press, and it's been a delight to work on this project, and I'm excited to see it hit the bookshelves and um, be released out into the wild. The official release date is not until February the 7th of 2024, so we still have some time before it comes out officially. However, it is available for pre-order. You can pre-order it uh, on Amazon. Uh, you can pre-order it at the LuxemPress.com website. Um, in fact, I think there's still, um, as of this recording at least, there's still a, um, a discount. So if you order it from Lexum Press, you get a pretty sizable discount. I think it's like 32% off or something. So it's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I'm, I just I, I really have a passion about this topic of eschatology, and um, each chapter goes through. Um, uh, different questions that are really um, well that are on the on on people's minds these days. So, for example, um, are we in the end times? That's chapter one. How should we understand Revelation? That's chapter two, and then on and on it goes. What is the mark of the beast? Will Christians be raptured? I'm really excited to hear what you what you think about that chapter. Um, uh, the fifth chapter is: Is there a coming time of tribulation? Chapter six. How can we know when Jesus will return? And then number seven, what can we know about the Antichrist? So seven questions, seven chapters. Um, there's an introduction and conclusion that bookends all of that. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I thought I would read um, uh, one of the blurbs that um, an, another scholar had had kindly written. Um, it, it, it was endorsed by several people, David DeSilva, Greg Boyd, Andrew Malone, Michael Gorman, Mark Booving, J. Nelson Craybill. And, you know, it's really cool um, uh, to, uh, it, well, it's, I, I pinch myself, to be honest with you, because these are people that I read their books 
And um, I learned a lot from them. And I, I never in a million years would have thought they would have been endorsing my book. So it's pretty cool. But anyway, um, I, I thought I would read Greg Boyd's endorsement. Um, he says, uh, he says, quote, the rapture, the antichrist, the great tribulation, the mark of the beast, 666. As our world seems to be unraveling and people are becoming more and more anxious, we are hearing these terms being talked about with increasing frequency. In this well-researched, well-written, and forcefully, forcefully argued book, Matthew Halstead considers these and other aspects of the standard evangelical rapture eschatology and holds them up to the light of biblical scholarship and reason. In the process, Halstead not only deconstructs the standard evangelical understanding of these concepts, he demonstrates how these and other biblical images of the end times were meant to buttress our hope in Christ's second coming, not to instill us with fear. Anyone who has ever embraced or been influenced by the standard evangelical eschatology or knows who knows people who have needs to read this compelling and much needed book. Many thanks uh, to Greg Boyd for that very kind endorsement. I hope that this book um, uh, helps people, encourages people, gives them hope, helps them uh, wade through those eschatological passages in Scripture. Um, at the end of the day, my hope in all of my writing is that um, anybody who reads my books would walk away closer to Jesus and and recognizing more how much they are loved by God. And so this book is no exception. I really do hope that this book helps folks um, do that and realize God's love for them and the hope that we can have in Christ in the gospel. So um, yeah, uh, pick up pick up a book, pre-order the book, uh, The End of the World as You Know It, what the Bible really says about the end times and why it's good news. So check it out on amazon.com or leximpress.com. I'll put links in the show notes below so that you can find those easy. Okay, well... Um, Let's see. Yeah, let's get to Romans chapter 11. We're going to begin by um, looking at, I don't know, I guess the first 15 verses. You know, I normally type all of my notes up on the computer, but this time I um, I, I did hand notes. So we'll see how, how this goes. But anyway, all right. Well, without further ado, let's dive into Romans chapter 11. Let's read verses 1 through 10. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a sluggish spirit, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and keep their backs bent, or forever bent. Okay, so there's a lot to be said about this passage. I feel like I could do a whole episode on just this section, but we'll resist the temptation. So let's just dive into the big items here that we need to address. So Paul is having to ask himself a question. Well, he's a- actually asking the question for the sake of his readers, who in his mind are probably asking this very important question, namely, has God rejected his people? 
Now here he's referencing uh, ethnic Jews who have not believed that Jesus is the Messiah. And so the natural question that would be asked is, well, has God rejected them? You know, Paul, if you're going off saying that you can be in covenant with God as a Gentile, um, then does that mean that God has just totally rejected Israel? Um, and he says, no. He, in fact, he says, Meganoita, by no means, no way. And he gives reasons why he, he, he says that. He says, I myself am an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, why, was, why is Paul saying that? He's saying that because he's demonstrating his point that he, as an ethnic Jew, is clearly in covenant with God because he believes Jesus is the Messiah, and therefore no one can say that God has rejected ethnic Jews. He is one, and he's accepted in Christ um, by God. Okay, so that's that's his whole point in saying that. In verse 2, he gives another reason. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. This is a very interesting uh sentence in verse 2, um, because we see this word foreknowledge or foreknowing. Now, we've ran into this before in Romans 8, and I'm not going to rehash all of that discussion because you can go back and check that out. It's a long episode, some two hours, I believe. Um, but it's important to at least point out a, a very important feature here. Um, how do we understand foreknowledge in this passage? Well, we have to um, answer that question by asking ourselves another question. Um, who is the referent for this foreknowledge? Who is being foreknown? Well, it's it's his people, God's people. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, the, this people, um, this is ethnic Jews who do not believe in Jesus. These are uh, are the um, you know the the Jews that Paul has been talking about in verse one. And so, this is a very interesting point I want to make. Because it demonstrates the fact that foreknowledge, divine foreknowledge, does not entail salvation. Um, because some of these people may not be saved. And Paul doesn't seem to think in his theology that all of them will. Later on, he's going to say that, you know, my hope as a, as a missionary is that God would use um, the gospel to save, you know, some of them. Of course, he wants all of them to be saved, obviously, but he just, he's hes being realistic here. He doesn't seem to think that everybody will end up believing that Jesus is the Messiah, and that's really sad for him, but that's thats what he says. Um, but my, my point here is just to show you that foreknowledge, divine foreknowledge, does not mean election uh, in this predetermination sense, okay? Because here um, you have um, the word for foreknow, foreknew, uh, applied to people who may or may not be saved. It's not a guarantee, in other words, okay? Um, Paul goes on to um, demonstrate a little bit more uh, about what's going on here and in verses 2 and on down. You know, he goes on and tells the Elijah story. Um, he says, do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah when he pleads with God against Israel? And here he quotes some passages from 1 Kings chapter 19. He says, uh, he, he quotes Elijah as to say, you know, uh, Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. Um, here, what Paul is doing is is reminding his readers of this Jewish idea of remnant theology. Okay, um, remnant theology. What is that? Well, it's this idea that God has a has you know a, a, a people, an ethnic Israel. Um, but within that people are the ones who are like truly following him, truly loyal to him. And that's what Elijah here is is lamenting, is that he feels all alone. I alone am left. 
Um, and then, of course, God replies to him and says, well, I have kept for myself 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I mean, meaning there are, you're not alone. There are 7,000 other people who are left. And what's interesting is this word left. It's the word lepo in, in uh, it comes from the, the root word lepo in Greek. And it occurs about, uh, or variations of that uh, root word, occur uh, three times in verses 3, 4, and 5. And unfortunately, the English doesn't, it's not as transparent about that. You don't, you don't get the translation such that you can see the connection that you would easily see if you were looking at this in, in, in the Greek language. So, for example, he, when Elijah says, I alone am left, that word left comes from the root word lepo, I alone am lepo, and then God says, well, no, I have lepo, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Okay, so you see that connection there? Verse 3, I alone am left, and then God says, no, I have left for myself 7,000 others. So, in English, that connection is not um, clear, but it is there. Um, and then um, verse 5, uh, Paul says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant. This is the word lema, which comes from lepo. Um, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Okay, so lots to say about this here. Um, let, let, me, um, let me talk a little bit about this remnant idea. So the big picture is that Paul is not introducing for the first time remnant theology. Okay, as if he's inventing this or anything. No, he's clearly getting this from the Old Testament, and he wants his readers to know um, something specific about this remnant idea. Again, if you're a good Jew, you are already familiar with remnant theology. What Paul is doing in context of this whole chapter of Romans 11 is Christologizing the Jewish idea of remnant theology. The remnant is according to Christ. That's Paul's big point in Romans 11. Remnant theology is centered around faith in Christ, the Christology. It's Christocentric, okay? You don't have that in the first Kings passage originally in the original context, but now that Christ has come, um, it has been recontextualized around Jesus. And you see this in verses 5 and 6 uh, and on down here. So too at the present time, says Paul, that there is a remnant chosen by grace. And now, when he says chosen by grace, there's two things I want to say about this. First, I don't like that translation because it doesn't really capture um, the, uh, the, uh, the Greek here, okay? Um, it's not, cho- it's not uh, chosen by grace. It's an, uh, really, really how you could translate this is, is to say, so too at the present time there is a remnant according to an election of grace. That's the, the, the idea here. That's a pretty wooden translation of the Greek. So let me repeat that. Verse 5. So too at the present time there is a remnant according to an election of grace. Do you see the difference there from the New Revised Standard Version? The New Revised Standard Version says so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. The way I have constructed it is so too at the present time there is a remnant according to an election of grace. And I think lots of things we can say about that, but I think the point here is that um, Paul is just saying that election in the present time is working very similar to how it did in First Kings in, in terms of a, a people within a people, okay? Like God has a, a, a big number of people, but within that big number of people, there are people who are specifically loyal to him. And for Paul, what it means to be loyal to Yahweh now is to be loyal to Jesus, the Messiah. And so when he says that there's an election of grace, that, rem, that the remnant is according to an election of grace, 
he is doing that in a, in what we would call an elliptical fashion. By elliptical, what we mean by that is that Paul is leaving out something here. He's he's just saying it shorthand. What he means to say is that um, there's an election of grace. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, there's a remnant still now according to an election of grace in Jesus the Messiah. Okay, he's left the in Jesus the Messiah off because it's assumed. That's what we mean by it's elliptical. He leads that part out, okay? Um, in other words, he's just saying that that election is Christological. I mean, that's pretty much what he's saying. Uh, remnant theology, more precise, I suppose, is is Christological. So you can have this big body of, of elect people, i.e. ethnic Israel, but within that, there is a remnant um, according to an election of grace, according to an, a Christological election of grace, okay? That's what Paul is really getting at. Um, he goes on and he says, verse 6, he says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Now, when he says that um, this idea of works, when he introduces works here, we should take him to mean what he has always been meaning uh, thus far in the letter. So we have talked about this, that when Paul talks about works, more than likely he's referring to specifically the works of Torah, those works of Torah that distinguish the Jews from the Gentiles, uh, works such as circumcision, um, perhaps Sabbath keeping, dietary restrictions. Um, I mean, he's been talking about circumcision a lot in Romans 2, Romans 4, so we can expect that's what he means here by works um, as well. And he's, he's, he's saying, look, this election, um, this uh, election according to the grace of Christ, it is based on grace completely, not works. In other words, he's saying it's open to all ethnicities, uh, Jews and Gentiles, um, and uh, it's not on the basis of, of like works of Torah, those works that distinguish one group from another group, the Jews from the Gentiles. No, it's a Christological election. Okay, that's the point. Um, just as we go on, verses 7, yeah, verses 7 through 10, um, I, I, think, I think when we get into verses 7 through 10, we'll see the, crystal, the Christology coming out, okay? We'll see that that's the emphasis here. Um, I, I suppose... Um, yeah, suppose that um, I could just read this again, just for clarity's sake. So verses 7 through 10, let me read this. He says, what then? Okay, he's sort of like summing up everything he said so far. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Okay, so let me, let me just stop here. This is just a good stopping point. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Okay. He's not saying anything new here. He's already said these sorts of things before, and he expects his reader to remember what he said in a previous chapter, specifically in Romans 9, verses 30, and the verses that follow that. So let me go back and read Romans 9, uh, 30. And um, yeah, I guess let me just see. Do, 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 do I want that? Um, yeah, so let me read 9.30 through 10.4. Okay. What then are we to say? Gentiles who did not strive for righteousness have attained it. That is righteousness through faith. But Israel who did not strive for righteousness 
I'm sorry, but Israel who did strive for the righteousness that is based on the law did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why not? Because they did not strive for it on the basis of faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written, see, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I can testify that they have a zeal for, for God, but not, but it is not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law so that, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Okay, did you notice that last part? He says that they were seeking to establish their own. It was uh, seeking to establish their own righteousness based on law. And that's what Paul is saying again in Romans 11, verse 7 here, saying the same thing, different words, different context, but the same idea. He says again, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now, so again, they failed to obtain what they're seeking because they were seeking it outside of Christ. They were trying to establish election on Torah, not Christology. And that's a big problem for Paul. He says that the rest, I'm sorry, that the elect obtained it, but the rest, they were hardened. Now, what does he mean by hardening here? Now, we've already talked quite a bit about this hardening idea um, in past episodes, so I'm not going to rehash all of that, but I just want to make a very important observation. I think it's worth making, even if it's redundant from previous episodes. Um, This idea of hardening cannot be a reference to you know, eternal hardening or eternal reprobation. This is not the doctrine of reprobation of the 17th century, okay? Um, Why not? Well, because as we'll see later on, I won't get into it now, but as we'll see later on in the chapter, Paul seems to think that um, the people who are hardened can actually come to faith. They can come to, they, they can, their hardening can be reversed if they choose to believe in Jesus, the Messiah. Okay, we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, yeah, this idea that God gave them a, a sluggish spirit, um, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day, verse 8. Um, so Paul is saying that, yeah, God is instrumental in, in, um, in, in this hardening process. But we have to ask how. How is God instrumental? We've already established that this is not an eternal hardening, so we have to kind of, well, we simply do. We have to toss it out. That's not an option based on the text, based on the data. Um, So how is God doing this hardening? Well, he's doing it by means of Christology. Okay, the the Christ who saves is the Christ who hardens. It's an old adage. It's an old cliche, but I think it captures an important biblical truth. Namely this, that the same sun that, um, that melts wax can harden clay, okay? It's based on the constitution of a person's heart. What do you do with Jesus? That's going to determine um, your relationship to God, your hardening or softening. That's what's going to um, determine your covenant inclusion or exclusion. And really, you see this in the next verse, um, verse 9, where uh, he quotes Psalm 68. Um uh, Paul says, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Now, some scholars, I don't remember off the top of my head who that might be. I have an idea, but I don't want to say because I'm not 100% sure. But some scholars, and I'm in- inclined to agree, um, some scholars say that this idea of a table becoming a snare and a trap, that's probably a reference to um, perhaps 
um, uh, you know, maybe dietary restrictions or some, you know, some, some of those works of Torah here, that that's actually served to be a trap to them. Okay. Um, you know, or maybe, maybe not, maybe something else is going on in here. Um, and, um, but, but this whole idea of a stumbling block, um, you know, that that's reoccurring here as well. You know, it could be that they have failed to see how Torah points to Jesus and testifies to Jesus. Maybe that's what's going on here. Um, how those works of Torah actually point to Messiah in, in some way. Um, because he does mention, the reason I say that is because he does mention the stumbling block, you know, that they're experiencing a stumbling block. This word is skandalon, a skandalon, a uh, stumbling block. And we saw that, uh, saw that a moment ago in, in um, uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 33, where Paul says, See, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble, a rock that will make them fall, skandalon, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, that's a passage that is Christologized by Paul. The stumbling stone, this rock is Jesus. And so you see that here in Romans 11 verse 9, the stumbling block idea. So again, Christology seems to be in play with respect to the hardening of the people's hearts. He goes on in verse 10, he says, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and keep their backs forever bent. That's an interesting passage in light of what I'm saying, right? He says, let them be forever bent. Let, let the rebellion be forever, in other words. But is that what Paul is actually saying? Again, based on the context that we'll see momentarily, that cannot be the case. It, it's not a forever hardening, okay? So that's not, what's, not what seems to be happening because Paul, will, Paul actually envisions this hardening being reversed based upon the decisions that these people make uh, with respect to Jesus. Okay, so again, it's Christology. That's that's the point here. Um, so so why would he use this word forever? This whole idea of being forever rebellious or whatever. Well, I think it's hyperbolic. I mean, I think that's the best best option for understanding this passage. Um, yeah, okay, so that's verses 1 through 10. Lots more to say. We can go back and forth on a lot of other bits and pieces here, especially on the quotations from the Old Testament. But what I want to do is just kind of leave this as it is and let it set. And let's move on to the next section. Hey, friends, I hope this episode is a blessing and encouragement to you. I hope that every episode of The Bible Unmuted gives you something fresh to consider and something deep to ponder. My goal is to offer food for thought, to give listeners the tools they need to be faithful interpreters of Scripture. I cherish your continued prayers for this ministry and thanks so much to everyone who lifts me up in prayer each week. If you're finding this podcast to be helpful for your study of scripture, consider leaving a review of the show and sharing with your friends. Perhaps even consider becoming a Patreon member. This will give you access to some cool stuff and it helps support the podcast. You can become a patron for as little as $5 a month. Every Patreon supporter gets access to a monthly bonus episode, as well as an invitation to a book club, where we come together periodically and chat about a book that we read together. There are various levels of support too, which will get you access to other things. You have the option to join monthly Zoom meetings with me, where we come together and discuss all sorts of fun, biblical, theological stuff. Another tier of support will get your name thrown into monthly book giveaways as well. All to say, there are lots of cool features for patrons of The Bible Unmuted. If you're interested, visit patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted or follow the Patreon link in the description for this episode. Thanks so much for your support. Let's read verses 11 through 15. So I ask, have they stumbled so as to fall? By no means, but through their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. 
Now, if their stumbling means riches for the world, and if their defeat means riches for Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I glorify my ministry in order to make my, to make my own people jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Okay, a couple of observations here. So here you're beginning to see that Paul does envision the possibility of the reversal of their hardening. He flat out says, you know, will their stumbling, uh, is their stumbling such that, that they're going to fall? By no means. In fact, it's through their stumbling that salvation is able to go to the Gentiles, which in turn rebounds back to Israel's benefit, causing them to be jealous and then therefore presumably wanting to come back into the covenant by faith in Christ. Now, this idea of jealousy here comes again from Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. We looked at that verse last week, and it's reoccurring here. But I just want to I just, I just make an observation so that you can uh, maybe um, file this away uh, for a, a little bit later into the, into the episode because we're going to revisit it. But just notice that the purpose for Gentile inclusion uh, and then the purpose for the, the purpose that God's going to make from this unfortunate situation uh, is is going to work out for salvation. So, okay, that all sounded really confusing. Let me repeat. God is going to use this unfortunate situation of Israel's hardening to be uh, to result in the blessing uh, for Israel. Um, God is just like super wise, super smart uh, to be able to take any dire situation, any unfortunate situation and cause all things to work out for the good of those who love God. He, I mean, so one, one of the church fathers, um, I think it was, oh goodness, I can't even remember, but they, they had, this is a great quote. I need to go dig it up. Um, it says, you know, God is able to, to mold any situation for his glory and our good. And I think the way he does it is he's, he's just so smart. Um, he's able to, he knows all things. He knows how to do anything. And so God can take even this unfortunate situation that Paul laments, namely Israel's rebellion and Israel's hardening and turn it into something good. Okay. Um, God's, God has, 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 a, has a way. He's, he's got um, the smarts to do this. I just want to point this out, file it away. We'll come back to it. It's also need, it also needs to be observed in verse 14, the verse we read a moment ago, where Paul again says he he, he um, glorifies his ministry to the Gentiles in order to make my own people jealous and thus save some of them. Again, um, um, God has this ability, uh, Paul thinks, to um, to bring about something good from this unfortunate situation. Um, yeah, and, and Paul is absolutely correct on that. Um, yeah, and also, again, um, Paul envisions that uh, these ethnic Jews who are currently hardened, they can come in. Again, this nullifies the whole idea that uh, what Paul has been talking about has been eternal reprobation. That's not the case. That's just not the way the text is going. And it's a good reminder that we perhaps need to um, uh, be const- constantly thinking about our systems of thought and checking our systems of thought in the light of what Scripture is teaching. I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind. Um, we always need to come back to Scripture to... Um, to uh, you know, revise some of the things that we have um, that we that we have accepted that may not necessarily be scriptural. Okay, lots more to say on that, but let's move on. 
Let's read verses 16 through 24. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy, and if the root is holy, then the branches also are holy. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it is not you that support the root, but the root that supports you. You will say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That is true, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, perhaps he will not spare you. Note then the the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And even those of Israel, if they do not persist in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you have been cut for if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Okay, so here Paul is giving a metaphor about uh, about this idea of election and reprobation or hardening. He's giving a metaphor about a wild, wild olive shoot and branches and rich root and just this olive tree idea. Let me see if I can unpack it a little bit. In verse 17, he talks about three, three elements of this, um, this uh, uh, image. He talks about branches that were broken off. This obviously is a reference to ethnic Israel. He talks about a wild um, olive shoot. This is the Gentiles. These, this wild olive shoot is grafted in their place to share the rich root. That's the third thing, the rich root of the olive tree. Um, so three things, branches, wild olive shoot, and the rich root. Okay. The rich root is sort of like the foundation. That's the, it's, well, it's a good image. It's the root. It's the thing that makes the thing, the thing. And, um, a number of scholars, and I am inclined to agree, believe that the, this rich root element is probably a reference to the patriarchs. I, I would say, I would say probably Abraham specifically. Um, you can see this in my book, page 205, 206. I, I uh, quote Gorman there. I think Gorman has um, mentions Abraham and the patriarchs here, and I and and that that's my opinion. Um, so you have this idea that the branches ethnic Israel has been you know, broken off. Why? Because of their unbelief. That's what he says um, in verse twenty. They were broken off for their uh, unbelief. Um, the wild olive shoot, the Gentiles, they're grafted in. Um, they didn't originally belong to this um, tree, but um, they're grafted in. Um, and by faith, okay? And the rich root is the patriarchs. It's the patriarchal promise, the thing that um, made Israel Israel, right? Um, and, you, and the reason I say Abraham is because of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God calls Abraham and Abraham's family to be a blessing to the nations. And uh, that promise was a covenant promise, and it is the root that made Israel Israel, okay? And, and because of Israel being Israel, she was uh, she was called to be a light to the nations, and and here you see that mysteriously being brought uh, to to conclusion to fulfillment because you have Gentiles coming in. Um, yeah, so that's a very important piece here. Um, and a thing here that we need to to also mention is, you know, to to reinforce what we've said a moment ago about 
you know, what it means to be elect and what it means to be hardened, um, I think Paul answers those questions straightforward. He says um, uh, to the Gentiles, he said, you know, you know, you, you will say branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. He says that is true, verse 20, verse 20, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand only through faith. So this is a very important point I think we need to make is that um, Israel's reprobation, their hardening, was not because of some eternal decree in the past. Um, that doesn't seem to be what's what's being said here, as if it's an eternal fixed decree. Um, this seems to be contingent upon their belief. I think this is just another important point to make. The idea of being broken off is due to faith, not not um, this this um, you know decree in in the past. Um, this breaking off, moreover, and this inclusion into the, the the tree is Christological. Election and hardening is all Christological. That's that's what faith and belief point to. Faith in who? Christ. Unbelief in who? Um, Christ. So that's that's the point here. And it's I say it's not an eternal fixed decree because these are people that can that can uh, believe again. <laughs> they you know they can come back to the tree. Um, and and moreover, those who are currently in the in the, the the rich root attached to the rich root, they can be broken off. That's what Paul says here. Um, you know, so um, let's see. He says, "If God did not spare the natural branches, perhaps He will not spare you." Um, he says, "You know, note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen." But God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. And even those of Israel, if if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in. Okay, again, so so this can't be eternal decrease kind of stuff, okay? And and, and this is a metaphor, remember, for election. Uh, that's an important point to make. He's not talking about something different here. He's continuing the same line of thought about election and hardening and all that, and it's all Christological. Um, that's a very, very important point. Now, we don't really see... Christology, you know, explicit here, but we see the words faith. And for Paul, faith is not abstract. It's not positive thinking. It's not hopeful thinking. It's not just got to have faith in an abstract way. No, this is faith in Jesus. In other words, it's all Christological. Um, yeah, just looking at my handwritten notes here. Again, I, I normally use typed notes, which are easier to read, um, but I'm looking at handwritten notes. What else do I need to say? Um, oh, yes, very important point. This whole passage is about don't boast, right? Like if you're a Gentile, you have no grounds to boast. Okay. You have zero grounds to boast. You are a wild olive shoot. You were not part of the covenant promises. And so if you find yourself in the Abrahamic family, it's only by, by grace through Christ. Okay. So there, there's no room for boasting at all. Um, zero, zero boasting. If you're boasting over your Jewish friends, uh, you know, you should question if you really understand the grace of Jesus, okay, you're just, if you're boasting at all, period. I mean, we're a humble people. Christians are a humble people. And and it also um, is not just for Gentiles to remember this, but also for, for Jewish people to remember this too, you know. Um, you know, God shows no favoritism, uh, that we are all one in Christ Jesus. And so this idea uh, of, of boasting being nullified is a beautiful piece because, you know, if there, you know, we need unity amongst ourselves, and and that unity can be found in Jesus, who has taken the the dividing wall of hostility. Read Ephesians, Ephesians two, 
He's taken the dividing wall of hostility and he's broken it down. And he's made out of the two people, one people in Christ. That's a beautiful, beautiful picture. We are all servants of one another. Each We, we look at each other um, humbly. And um, and so that's that's what Paul is saying here. So zero reason to boast, every reason to boast in the grace of Jesus. Um, there's nothing in us that made any of this possible. We look to Jesus and we say, thank you. We, we, we glorify Jesus for his grace. And we look upon our brothers. We look upon every human being on this planet. And we look upon them uh, with love and kindness. And we consider ourselves their servants because Jesus has come to our world and has considered um, us um, as, as beloved. And so we look upon others in the same way. Okay, moving right along here. I want to pick up, I guess we're going to pick up in verse 25. Um, Let me read verse 25 through 32. So that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, out of Zion will come the deliverer. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their ancestors. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that, by the mercy shown to you, they too may now receive mercy, for God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. Okay. So in verses 26 and 27, there was a couple of quotations from Isaiah, Isaiah 59, Isaiah 27, and there was a nod here to Jeremiah Jeremiah 31 about this whole covenant idea of taking away sins, and that's Isaiah 27 and Jeremiah 31. We won't get into all that. It's fascinating to go back and look at some of that, but um, I, I just want to stay 30,000 feet above the trees so that we can focus uh, quite a bit. Um, I, I want to bring our attention, though, to... Um, uh, again, I guess we can look at verse 25, this hardening idea. Um, it, it's, it's only in place, says Paul, until the full number of the Gentiles come in. So it's, it's temporary. Um, but it's important there to note that um, even in Paul's own day, he, you know, he's not necessarily like looking, you know, saying, saying in the future that this is like some sort of uh, hardening that, that goes on for a certain amount of time. I mean, I think that's part of it, of course, but but even even he thinks in in his time frame and his his uh, point in history that that this hardening can be reversed okay so so there, yeah i just want to make that clear that even in paul for paul even in his day he thought the hardening could be reversed so he's not like looking necessarily toward the future eschatologically merely um uh, but it's a multifaceted idea here i do want to look at verse 28 um where he says as regards the gospel they are enemies of god for your sake but as regards election they are beloved this is fascinating because here you have this election language um, uh, brought up again, um, and it's it's used here in reference to those who've rejected the gospel. Um, it's a, as a reference to ethnic Israel, the question here is whether they will fulfill the vocation of the patriarchs, namely to be the rescue plan for the world. I mean, that's what they were called to, and that gift and calling is irrevocable. Um, you know, will they fulfill that? That's Paul's hope because, yeah, as ethnic Israel, they are, you know, uh, children, fleshly children of Abraham. And um, and so Paul, I think, is bringing this up because he's really wanting his people to take that 
take their heritage very seriously and say, look, you were called to be a blessing to the Gentiles. You were called to be a covenant bearer. Do that. Do that. Um, and I think, um, you know, this, this is this whole idea of following in the vocation of the patriarchs, um, you know, to, for, for Israel to do that and therefore be the rescue plan for the world. Um, I think this, this point is, um, uh, you know, sort of the, the point of verse 17. Um, so for example, let me go back and read verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree. So this idea of Gentiles coming in and sharing in this, um, uh, this, this olive tree and sharing in this root of the patriarchs. Um, I think, you know, I think, um, I, I think for Paul, this idea is he wants his people to see their vocation and how they they need to they need to follow in the steps of Abraham and and, and fulfill the covenant through Christ, of course, um, and and be that light to the Gentiles. You know, will you know? He's asking, will the natural branches stay true to the root of their olive tree? I think that's that's the question. Um, and so here, I just want to recap again that Genesis eleven twelve narrative. Um, you can find find this in my book, and I talk a lot about it elsewhere, but. And and I draw on on N.T. Wright's insights here too, but ju- that, that ju- Genesis eleven twelve narrative I think needs to be considered as we consider Romans eleven and what Paul's really saying here. So Genesis eleven twelve um, that that narrative is you know verses I'm sorry um, uh, chapters uh, Genesis chapters three through eleven is all about human wickedness and sin how it spiraled out of control and um, and the nations have gone berserk essentially and so in in chapter twelve of Genesis. God calls Abraham and he calls him out and says, I'm going to bless you and your family and in you, all the families or the nations of the earth, they will be blessed as well. And so God promises the Abraham family or Israel that they will be blessed and they will be a blessing to the nations. And of course, we have to ask ourselves, why do the nations need to be blessed? Well, go read Genesis 3 through 11. They're messed up. And so God's rescue plan for the world is the Israel family, is, is the nation of Israel. This is basic N.T. Wright stuff in his book, Justification and Paul and the Faithfulness of God. So be sure to go check out those books because he, he talks uh, about this whole idea of Israel as a rescue plan for the world. And as N.T. Wright further says, is you know he, he notices something that we should all notice, namely that as Israel goes about her vocation, we all discover, Israel discovers that she needs rescuing from sin as well. So um, it turns out that God cannot use Israel to rescue the world because Israel needs to be rescued as well. And so the the, the question before God really is, well, is how is God going to stay true to his promise to Abraham? How is he going to rescue the world through the family of Abraham? God's not going to pick the Americans to do it. He's not going to pick um, any other nation to do it, the Chinese or the Australians or anybody. Why not? Well, because they need rescuing and he promised Abraham covenant. It was a covenant that God made Abraham. He must use the family of Abraham if he's going to be true to his covenant. And God is always true to his covenant. So how does God do that? How does God use the family of Israel to rescue the world? Short answer, Jesus. He has to find a faithful Israelite to do the job. And Jesus is the faithful Israelite. That is why in the New Testament Gospels, you see Jesus reenacting the story of Israel. Go read Matthew 1 through 7. Jesus um, lives for a time in Egypt and 
has his exodus from Egypt to go back to the promised land. Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. You have his temptations in the wilderness for 40 days. Well, that's a weird number. Um, his baptism, his crossing through the waters of the Jordan, his uh, being on a mountain, talking about Torah and the law. I mean, he's reenacting the story of Israel. He's reliving Israel's story in his own body. Why? Why is he baptized in the Jordan? He tells us because he wants to fulfill all righteousness. That doesn't mean forgiveness of sins, for he has no forgiveness of sins. Uh, He has no sins to be forgiven. To fulfill righteousness means to um, fulfill the covenant, to be covenant faithful, um, to, to be God's arm, to be Yahweh's arm of faithfulness to his people, Israel. And so he crosses the Jordan and he starts a ministry and he makes people whole. Um, it's a beautiful picture. And so God has found a faithful Israelite to rescue the world. Now, in Romans, of course, we still have this issue of Israel not believing, Israel not participating in, um, uh, in, in these covenant blessings, and it's going to the Gentiles. And Paul sees this as a problem because he's a good, devout Jew who knows the covenants and the promises and so forth. He knows that Israel is called to be a blessing and to be blessed. And so that's so. So the question is: Is how is Israel going to be blessed and be a blessing? Well, this is where he builds his system of election around Christology, and he he, he makes sense of the circumstances. Um, uh, he, he, that's how he makes sense of the circumstance of Israel's unbelief. So, for example, he thinks that just because Israel is unbelieving in Jesus, he doesn't see that as deterring God's plan. Um, he doesn't see that as messing up God's um, program of redemption for the world. No, no. He says, no, it's by their rejection that the Gentiles are able to come in. Um, that's that's the whole point of Romans 11, right? Is to say that, you know, Israel has stumbled and the gospel has in turn gone to the Gentiles. And so has God given up on his people? Paul says, no, not at all. Because in in their rejection, yes, the gospel has gone to um, uh, or in, in Israel's rejection of the gospel, the gospel has gone to the Gentiles. But by going to the Gentiles, that's going to make Israel jealous, which means they're, at least some of them are going to you know, come to faith, just like some Gentiles are going to come to faith. That, you know, he envisions that, that Jews and Gentiles will come to faith as a result of this disobedience, that the Gentiles were disobedient, but the gospel has gone to them because of Israel's disobedience. And because the gospel goes to the Gentiles, Israel's going to be jealous, and they're going to come into the, into the covenant because of their jealousy. So even in their disobedience, it's going to work out for their good in the end, right? Uh, for many of them, at least those who believe in Jesus. And, and so why this is important is because what we're seeing here in Romans 9, 10, and 11, especially in 11, is how God fulfills his promise to Abraham. Remember, in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham I will bless you and you will be a blessing to the nations. And so what you have here is the Christ people being blessed with covenant inclusion and being a blessing to others as well. So the Jews, they, um, they, are, they will be blessed because the gospel, even in their disobedience, goes to the Gentiles and the Gentiles will bring them in through jealousy. So they're going to be, even in their disobedience, they're blessing the Gentiles by by you know the gospel going to them and they will be blessed in return because many of them will come to faith in Jesus just like Paul Paul is a son of Abraham a Benjamite um and and he has come to faith so he's he's a living example of the Genesis 12 promise coming 
to truth. And so do you, do you, I hope I'm explaining this. It's kind of late at night, so my brain's not working well. But do you see how that narrative of Genesis 12 is playing through here in Romans 11? How God is uh, truly blessing Israel and making them a blessing to the nations? And how th- even those Gentiles who become Christians, they're grafted into this, this, um, this Israel tree and they in turn get to participate in the blessing of the nations, including the nations of the Gentiles and the nation of Israel. So if so, here's the point. If you are in Jesus, you are blessed and you will be a blessing. And this is why Jesus himself tells us in, 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 in the Great Commission, go into all the world, all the nations, baptizing all the nations um, and teaching them all, these, all the things I've taught you. We are called to be a blessing to the nations. Why? Because as Christ people, we are Israel people, and Israel's vocation, Israel's election is all about being a blessing to those who are outside of the covenant so that they might come into the covenant. And how do you come into the covenant? Through Christ. Election is Christological. Everything for Paul is Christological. And so I hope we've seen here um, the way all of this is functioning, the way Paul's biblical theological narrative is working and fleshing itself out. Do not, don't you dare read Romans 9 without reading Romans 10 and 11. You've got to have all three of those together. And don't you dare try to read Romans 9 through 11 without reading Romans 2 and Romans 3 and Romans 4. My goodness, I think we should just read all of Romans to get the point. I think that's a pretty good idea. Let's read all of Romans to get the full story of what Paul is saying. So in light of all of that, in light of how God takes the Abrahamic covenant and shows himself faithful through Jesus the Messiah and through the Messiah people, the Christians, Jew and Gentile, it makes sense why Paul will end Romans 11 the way he does. Here's what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's a beautiful picture of, of, um, of how we're supposed to respond to this biblical theological story that's being painted before our eyes in Romans uh, 9 through 11. Um, we are just supposed to stop and praise God. Um, Paul quotes from Isaiah 40 and, and, and Job uh, 41 here, um, and uh, you, I'll, I'll let you go back and look up those and compare all of that. Um, lot, lots to be said about those quotations, but I, just, I guess I just want to end on this. Is just, just I, I think every study of Romans, um, there are two things that happens when you study Romans. One, you get, it, you get into some depth of, of the narrative, you get into some deep theology, you get into all sorts of beautiful, beautiful, deep things. Um, but that's the first thing. The second thing that should happen is um, we it should cause you to get on your knees and praise God, to just stop and be in awe of how God works. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful thing. And I'm so glad that Paul ends Romans 11 with a doxology, with this note of praise to God. Well, friends, that's everything today. I hope you enjoyed our study through Romans chapter 11. Next week, we're going to be diving into, you guessed it, Romans chapter 12, another fun chapter. There's so much more fun to come. See you next time. 
That's the end of today's episode, and thanks again for listening to The Bible Unmuted. If you like this podcast, consider rating it on your podcast platform, subscribing to it, and sharing with your friends. You can also support the podcast by becoming a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash thebibleunmuted, or simply find the link to the Patreon page in the description for this episode. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, friends. Thank you.